0: Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, I speak with Nuno Santos, director of CNN Portugal, which is launching this Monday, the 22nd of November. Plus, Dan Crow from new ambitious literary title Ink Magazine, A Thing of Beauty. Also on the show, Italian photographer Michele Sibiloni on his new book showcasing the grasshopper-catching industry in Uganda. Enjoy the show. Midori House in London, this is The Stack. 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, an exciting new channel in Portugal. This coming Monday, the 22nd of November, CNN will launch CNN Portugal in the country, an ambitious investment in a nation that is becoming an important hub in Europe. To tell me more about the launch, I spoke to CNN Portugal director Nuno Santos.
1: I think that right now Portugal is a vibrant market that uh, has been changed a lot in the last, uh, I would say, five to ten years. The news channels are really strong in our market. I would say that that are a case study when we we look to the, the, the landscape in the European situation. And, um, well, I don't want to talk for, for CNN, uh, but... Uh, I think that when we start to to talk in beginning of uh, this year of 2021, they believe that we have capacity to do sharing with them a strong, not only a strong uh, broadcast channel, that's part of of the deal, but also a very strong uh, digital operation. And uh, for us, that's also Something I won't say something new, but something very different. That's the things that we are doing until now. And it is quite a big launch, right? In
0: terms of numbers, you know, for Portugal. Tell us a bit more about the number of journalists that have been hired for the for the operation. Tell us a bit about the numbers of CNN
1: Portugal. Well, um, probably it's important to explain uh, something that uh, you don't know, or your listeners also doesn't have that information. We belong to a big media group that is the the most important media group in Portugal called Media Capital. Uh, Media Capital, well, we have a strong entertainment and drama operation with an FTA channel. Right now we are not the leaders of the market, but we were during more than 10 years. And we have also in FTA a strong news operation. So we mixed our news operation in FTA with the operation of CNN. That uh, means that's part of the resources we will share uh, between our FTA and our news channel that is CNN. Well, I'm talking about the production, the planning, things that uh, actually we can share for both brands, I can say it, but we have a team between anchors, executive producers, producers, line producers, of uh, almost 60 people dedicated to the operation of CNN. And of course, that we are uh, sharing also all the net that CNN has across the world. And we are talking about a huge operation. Even that's the most important uh, subject for us. It's to create a channel that talk for the Portuguese audiences. So in our daily basis, we will have the issues the pundits, the anchors, that are really connected with the Portuguese audiences.
0: And Nuno, every time I think of Portugal as well, I I have a feeling that the country is becoming almost like a hub in Europe, but also the close connections to Africa, the other Lusophone countries. Would you say that's one of the strengths as well of CNN Portugal? And you even mentioned that you might collaborate with the the huge network, CNN. But I think Portugal is is in such a strategic position, actually.
1: Yes. Well, I'm a little bit suspect to talk about that, but I think that we have a very, not only in a geographic perspective, but also because Portugal has a unique position to, to do that connection between the North and the South, even in the language, uh, because, well, we are a small country, of course, we have 10 million of people, but uh, we can connect with the, the Africa countries that speak Portuguese, and some are big countries like Angola or Mozambique, with the difficulties that we know, but uh, with the capacity to grow. Then we have the capacity to work with Brazil, and we have also a CNN Brazil. So I believe that's not only in other fields for political reasons, strategic reasons, but also in the communication, we have a role that we can, can put on the, on the table. And I believe that for CNN, that's part of the interest of the Portuguese market. Very much so. And, and Nuno, I mean,
0: you must be a very busy man these days because the network is launching this coming Monday, right? So you must, you must have a crazy weekend ahead.
1: A crazy week, um, but uh, at the same time, uh, it's the most uh, stimulant. And um, uh, I would say unforgettable times of uh, our lives. I always said this to, well, to the young people that we have in on the team. I had this experience. I launched the first news channel in Portugal 20 years ago. And I have it on my front. It's called SIC Noticias. Everyone says 20 years ago, well, it's not possible in a market like Portugal. We don't have enough news. Imagine, we don't have enough news to do a 24-hour news channel. Uh, We don't have enough uh, people on the political field, commentators and this and that, but um, we did it. And I remember that experience for many reasons, but one of the reasons it's because the the process of building the grid uh, to tell the people the right things and the wrong things that we cannot do, but the right things to do, trying and the world changed completely in 20 years. 20 years ago, we don't have, well, we have it, but it's very different. We don't have internet. Uh, like we have it today, we don't have social media, well, it's it's another reality. So, yes, it's a very busy week, and uh, we are in the middle of a political crisis in Portugal, so that means that uh, I would say that we will have at last three months is really busy in our front, but it's an amazing time. To launch a, a channel with the brand of CNN, and that's that makes the difference. In the last uh, in the last months, I would say I've been connected with uh, the advertising market, uh, talking with the brands, talking uh, with everyone, and I understand that exists a big expectation, and that means a big responsibility also. But uh, big expectations about the launch of CNN because uh, the brand is so strong. That you need to to have the capacity to do the things like CNN does. It's the some words, some, sometimes when I have here meetings with the people of CNN, they use the expression "Let's do the things like CNN does." That's it.
0: It's such a powerful brand, you know. I think you you already start with an advantage. You don't need to explain to people more or less what it is. And and it's so funny, Nuno, you mentioned, it's a perfect time to launch as well, because you you mentioned the Portuguese political crisis. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of meaty kind of stories to tell your viewers, right?
1: Yes, well, CNN, it's, um, sometimes people think that CNN, it's only political in, on the perspective of the politics, but uh, CNN is about people, it's about the stories, it's about the capacity, to tell amazing stories. I watched, uh, I think that it was yesterday or the day before, an amazing uh, live from the border between Poland and, uh, and Belarus. It was, well, something tough, really tough, but at the same time you understand that television and digital, well, we have a role to do, and it's very important to have in, in this time of fake news, to have, uh, uh, news with the, where the, when the people can trust in your in your sources, uh, accurate. So that's part of our of our job.
0: That was Nuno Santos from CNN Portugal, and make sure to tune in from next week. And talking about new launches, I had the pleasure to speak with Dan Crow in our studios to talk about the release of Inc., his new magazine together with Matt Willey. The literally title will be released once a year for the next 10 years only. A proper commitment. Among Inc. contributors, you have names such as Margaret Atwood, Edmund Deval, among others. The beautiful title is out this week. Dan tells me more about it.
2: It is ambitious, but it's also quite pure. It's a magazine. It will come out once a year, so it's an annual magazine. There's a a sort of a limit to how many issues there's going to be. We're only going to make ten issues, so it's going to be a magazine that covers this decade. And in a way, we wanted to to produce something that was collectible, beautiful, very physical, something that didn't have a a web version. So Matt Willey, who was the magazine um, art director of the New York Times for many years and is now at Pentagram New York, and I, we both produce Port Magazine, but we created a list of things that we wanted to do that were just the sort of passion points of making a magazine, and we wanted to get rid of the things that were a bit, in a way, sometimes that might get in the way of producing a magazine. So we got rid of things like advertising and uh, any kind of distribution problematics. Getting distribution is is very hard these days, and I think it's a model that hasn't particularly been updated very well over the last 30 years. So we just decided to do the project In exactly the same way that we, in exactly the right way that we wanted to produce something that was creatively very pure. And so that's what we've done. And um, this is issue one. And what's beautiful as well, I mean, you can see that it's
0: been crafted with love. I mean, you've been thinking about this for five years, right?
2: Yeah, the uh, initial idea happened in, um, it was actually 2016. So yeah, it, it happened a long time back and it took a while to figure out how to finance it which turned out to be a Kickstarter event, which we were mindful of, but actually is brilliant because it creates your own sort of group of people who are backing this, who are passionate about it, who keep on, you know, focused on it and talking about it. And after a year and a half, they're going to get the, the first issue soon. But it's um it has taken a while. And in a way, that's one of the plus points to working on a. A project like this because you can invite people to be part of it who are terribly busy everyone's terribly busy these mm-hmm. days but you can say hey I don't want anything for you know two years or three years so it's harder for people to say <laughs> to say no and also we liked the idea of it having a series of contributors who add to their same story each issue so for example Jonathan Latham is writing a chapter of a new novel in every issue of ink so it won't be a, a novel that you can buy elsewhere it will be a novel that only completes with issue 10 of, of Inc. in 2030.
0: That's amazing. But that also shows, I know you mentioned contributors might like this because, oh, you know, it's not super immediate. But there's a lot of level of trust uh, in you and your team as well. Probably, you know, say, oh, you know what, I know Dan very well and I think you do a good job out of it. Because it's, it's also you're committing yourself for 10 issues as well, which is quite, quite a big deal as well.
2: It's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, this project terrifies me. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> no, but Perhaps I shouldn't say that No, one. no, but <laughs> it, it, terrifying can be good as well Well, absolutely I think Bowie said something like If you're feeling really, really comfortable Then something's not right And, you know, we, Matt and I and, and Kushar Swara Who's at the Telegraph now Launched port a decade ago but To create the magazine we wanted And and, and that, that happened and, and that's still happening but in a way, sometimes your, your uh, interests change and, and my interests, uh, whilst are still very linked to lifestyle and, you know, f- food and, and many of the things that, you know, Monocle are passionately interested in, we're interested in too. But I've got to say the, the idea of creating a very pure literary magazine, really supporting new writers, really seeing what happens when you ask writers what they want to write about. That was a thrilling opportunity and the idea of having a really dangerous element to it, (laughs) i.e. can we sustain this for 10 issues with absolutely no advertising, just purely on sales? That was, um, I think, the ingredient we needed to um, pull in uh, a lot of... You know, creative people are often really excited by by danger. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's the reason why Margaret Atwood's writing for Issue 1. She's a creative, dangerous okay. person. I mean, you just,
0: <laughs> dro- you just dropped a name there. I was going to ask you about, give, give us some examples of the contributors, because, as I said, it's a very impressive list.
2: Yeah, it is uh, um, a great list. Uh, we've got... Um, Tom Waits uh, writing in there, we've got Hanif Qureshi, we've got Wells Tower who's an extraordinary short story writer who hasn't uh, written a short story, at least one that's been published for I think eight years so I talked him into I don't know quite how, uh, writing something for ink and it's it's an extra, a genuinely jaw-dropping story, it's really beautiful a lot of these stories too are, um, are over 10,000 words um, so they're not small things that they're, they're really kind of uh, pieces of artwork to to savor but uh, you know as I said people are interested in magazines that I think give them space and time to develop their their craft and you know we did work on this particular issue for for 16 months We started actually getting copy in 16 months ago so that's the idea that we we produce something that's large physically but also uh, intellectually sort of has a great deal of range I like the idea that there's a lot of different types of writing in here too. It's not just fiction. There's a lot of social commentary. Gia Tolentino, the amazing uh, New Yorker writer, has written um, beautifully uh, about, well, you have to read the issue, but it, it's it's not all fiction. There's a lot of nonfiction. very kind of brilliant long-form essays. Uh, Jay Griffiths, the hard-to-define-but-genius uh, nature writer, has written a travel piece about Prague, which is um, a profoundly odd piece because she's never been to Prague but why should that stop somebody writing about it exactly exactly and let's talk about the vi- the visual of the
0: magazine i mean it, it is it is beautiful stunning and 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 i think that's something that's happening with a lot of magazines as well they're becoming special objects you know almost objects of art in a way and i think that's the what's happening with ink here a very beautiful beautiful cover i mean if you don't mind talking about about the look of the magazine
2: yeah, I mean, I've worked with um, the designer Matt Willey for, for since two thousand and three or four when we worked together on, on Zembla magazine, which he uh, worked with uh, under Vince Frost. And for me, it's it's really important to have something that looks good and working with a designer that you admire. But also, further to that, I would say that it's important to work with a, a designer or agency that um, understand your what you are trying to do. And I think Matt and I are very much on the same page about. Not really bothering what what other people think. Not really, you know. If a piece of fiction came in and it was fifty thousand words, we would publish that. It wouldn't, or sixty, or I mean, it just it just doesn't matter. And I think that's that's what's exciting to us. I guess we're kind of slightly obsessed about trying to always do things a bit differently. But that's only because if you don't do that, then what's the point really of of doing anything? So Matt's um, visual palette, I just uh, love it. It's I don't know. It's hard to explain it, but. um, we liked the idea of having a very sort of art-led cover, not having much text on it at all. The idea of it being a an art print on the cover, but also keeping it quite simple inside, uh, with a few surprises. But I think absolutely, magazines need to to sort of aspire to be beautiful art objects now, because the the large-scale magazine industry doesn't exist anymore. What does exist are magazines like you know Fantastic Man, Monocle, you know these are the mag- you know Port. Um, Gentlewoman, these are the magazines that are doing interesting work now that are inhabiting the magazine space, the larger magazines, that market is is crumbling, I would say. And so it's really exciting for the magazines that do have really exciting art direction and interest in doing something a bit more radical.
0: And where can people buy incoming? I mean, will it sell in traditional newsstands, or do you perhaps have online sales? I don't know. Do you, Absolutely. What's yeah. The,
2: the idea was that we we wouldn't be going down the route of traditional distribution. I'm not. A, it it doesn't quite work uh, anymore, especially for a magazine as physically large as this. So whilst we are going to be on sale in, I think it's about 150 outlets globally. The idea being that if we go, if there's you know like Shakespeare and Co for example in in Paris will sell it and I think that might be the only place in Paris it might be another place, so on the whole if you go to an iconic bookshop in in America or, or or Berlin or whatnot, Inc uh, I hope will be there but most of the sales are happening online through the through the website and that's where it's it's easiest to get it and um easier to to track it, but there is a fixed amount that we print per issue which is six thousand copies. And we've sold three thousand copies already, so it's it's going pretty quick.
0: And this is the launch week, so I mean, that's that's an impressive, that's an amazing number. Are you already thinking of issue two? I mean, well, because we know that it's coming out probably next
2: November, right? It will be next November. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I I have um, just started thinking about it. Yeah, there's plenty of conversations that were had from issue one that that are sort of rolling over, and there's a an art project that we're working on with a an iconic lady. Um, <laughs> which I hoped to get into the launch issue, but it couldn't quite happen. So um, there's certainly some things happening for issue two,
0: yeah. There was Dan Crow there from Ink magazine, which is out now. And finally on the show, a new book that caught my attention for its eeriness and beauty. Italian photographer Michele Sibiloni, who was based in Uganda for many years, spent some time with grasshopper catchers in the country. It's a big deal there, a country where grasshoppers are considered a delicacy. The end result is a book called Ensenene. Michele tells me more about the project.
3: So I moved to Uganda in 2010 and I've been working as a as a photographer and uh, and cinematographer since then in the region, not only in Uganda. I've been following the news for a few years and um, and my first monograph came out in 2016 with edition Patrick Frey. Uh, the title is Fuck It and it's a sort of a night documentation of Kampala nighttime through my own experiences there. That was my first uh, attempt, let's say, to do an authorial work that was outside from the commissions, from the clients and the jobs that I was doing on a daily basis. And was also a way to Try to have images that they were more connected with me and with my life rather than uh, external events. So I kind of want to distinguish myself uh, in terms of image uh, image making and storytelling from what my colleagues were having. Because sometimes when you when you go in a country to follow a particular event, there are always uh, different kind of journalists, photographers, and what happened after a few years is that I realized that my content was uh, quite similar to the one of that my colleagues had. Uh, also because I n- never really had the chance to spend uh, extremely long period in uh, following a particular stories because of logistics, cost, and so on. So I started to look for stories that they were more related to my background and the nighttime is something that always uh, been a big part of my life and always that intrigued me a lot. And uh, then Ensenene, it's part of the cultural, uh, background of Uganda especially in the central region so it's something that I've been seeing since I've I've been living there and once I did also a story for a tv I think and and I went filming one night and uh, you know and see a little bit closer uh, the traps and this kind of uh, this kind of business so I thought was very interesting and I thought as soon as I have time I would like to explore this in a in a deeper way I did the first season before my first book came out and i went to photograph without any plan and started to explore a few different places uh, a friend of mine put me in touch with his brother who had a few traps in masaka which is the first town that started to trap grasshoppers in uganda uh, which is so called ensenene republic because it's the main town where all the trappers that normally traps around uganda are coming from so i started to collect images the and 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 this particular event, it lasts for, let's say, one and a half month from about the end of October to the beginning of December. And then they have another shorter season at the end of the rainy season, let's say in spring, which could be end of April, May, around that time. So it's something that you cannot work on it all the year. So it's kind of of very important that you organize yourself if you want to do a long-term project. To, to be free for that particular time. And sometimes it's not easy because you have other jobs and so on. So it happened over the years that I had to uh, refuse like paid jobs to do my, my own work. So I did that uh, also the second year, which happened, the second year happened that I found myself inside one of those big swarms, because that is not something that happened every day. It's something that uh, that happened a couple of times during the season. It's very difficult to be in the right place in the right time but I had the opportunity to be inside this huge swarm during the second season and it was something so overwhelming that I was also confused and I didn't know so exactly what to photograph and how because it was, was literally like the, the sky was totally green and grasshoppers were everywhere and there was a lot of noise and everyone was busy catching and uh, and it's something really emotional that it's also very difficult to describe. So from that point, it was a pivotal moment because I understood that I really want to experience that again, hopefully several times. So as the trappers at the same time were obsessed by that event because it's the time that they are making a lot of money in short time, and, and it's where the investment that they made during the season comes back to you in terms of uh, economics. So they were obsessed in living that moment for their reason and I was obsessed for my own reason to live the experience again and to make photograph. So that is kind of the drive that started the second season. I photographed the grasshopper season for from 2014 till 2020 and in the past two three years, I didn't take many photographs, but I've been filming mainly because we will be releasing a film next year about this because uh, because it is something that it touches so many topics that it would have been difficult to do it in a sort of um,
0: a democratic way just with the photographs. So amazing that you guys are doing a film about it. That's fantastic. Will, yeah. will, do you know already where people will be able to see that?
3: No, we don't know because uh, I'm doing this with a friend of mine, which is a director from the US. I, w- I won't be the director of the film. I will be the, the DOP and, uh, and co-producer. But we're hoping to get it done in spring and send it to the festivals that will be around that time. So we don't know exactly which ones, but uh, I think probably by the end of next year, maybe it will be already on some platform, let's say. I don't know, hopefully.
0: I have a question. Why is it such an important source of income uh, in Uganda? I mean, how do they use the grasshoppers? I'm, I'm quite curious. I mean, is it because is it they're food or or yeah. tell me a bit more?
3: It's it's uh, it's considered a delicacy and is a big part of their culture. So it's something that during the season, everyone knows and everyone eats them. It's expensive food. It's not cheap. That's why also there is this kind of uh, hype in, in catching them because... Uh, people over the years, especially like back in the days when it started, or anyway, years ago, it has changed the life of many people because with uh, if, if you were lucky, with some traps which had a very reasonable kind of investment, some people made uh, quite a lot of money, especially back in the days, as I was saying, because there were many more grasshoppers and uh, less people catching them. So people were making maybe the same in, in one or two months were making the same amount of money that would have made with the other jobs all over the year and use those this money to maybe to start businesses or, or to invest in businesses that they already had to boost them and to make them going. So there was this, uh, there is always this thing like a bit like gambling, uh, which you invest money and you don't know if it will come back and how much. And there is always this hope that this this massive, Swarm will come and will just stay like for several hours around your trap, and you can just like become rich in one night. It it happened. I mean, I spent one night with a guy. That one night, that there was a massive swarm, and he had to call it to hire a truck to get all the grasshoppers to Kampala, a a big truck, and he made uh, something like twenty-two million shilling, which is uh, which is around six thousand dollars, five thousand dollars in one night. And that, that kind of dream, it, it moves around the head of all the trappers, you know. There's a lot of hope and there is a lot of myths about it and uh, and the reasons that people believe that the grasshoppers are coming and not about factors uh, related to the rains and, and to the weather and, and to the moon as well because when the full there's a full moon, normally they don't come because they, the full moon is very bright. So apparently they're more attracted from the moon or something like that, but it's it's really unpredictable. So it happened that one night, it was full moon, it was cloudy and the grasshopper came and then it, the moon came out again, but they were still staying. So everything, all the theories I've heard, have been always like dismantled by, by events. And uh, and that that is, uh, I mean, what what we really know is that is something really unpredictable, the, the swarm.
0: That was Michele Sibiloni, and Senene is out now published by edition Patrick Frey. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me Fernando at fb@monaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time, and of course, meanwhile, you can always listen again to the show at monaco.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. This is Betty Muvanguzi with Ensenene. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.